What I wanted to do today was tell you a little bit about something I really enjoy, which is human space exploration and the engineering that, uh, that goes with it. So this is an engineering lecture about all kinds of different engineering things. I personally, I might be a little biased, but I personally think this is the best kind of engineering and the most fun. And uh, so hopefully you'll, you'll share a little bit of my enthusiasm by the end of it. All right. <laughs> so what I wanted to do during the discussion was start a little bit with what NASA is trying to achieve today, what we have achieved in the, in the recent past. I'm not going to go back very far. And then tell you the design and development that we're doing from an engineering perspective and sort of long-term goals and challenges. So first, let me start. We'll see if this pointer shows up and cooperates. Ah, there we go. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about these three different phases, Earth Reliant, Proving Ground, and Earth Independent. So Earth Reliant <coughs> is low Earth orbit. Uh, that's where the space station is. That's where the space shuttle flew for decades. It's about 200 miles above the surface of the Earth. There's not a hard definition for what, what LEO is. But that's where the space station is, about 200 miles above the Earth. Uh, you can return from the space station in hours, um, actually 45 minutes, but you have to do some pesky things like undocking and making sure that you're in the right place, but you can return from the space station in hours. Um, the next area where we're really spending our development right now is on the proving ground, and that is the area beyond the moon, <clears throat> not yet to Mars, but beyond the moon. And in that case, the return is days, the missions are months or longer. So I'm going to be talking quite a bit about some of the challenges associated with that. Um, the ultimate goal is to get to Earth independent, uh, really probably the surface of Mars or Phobos, one of the moons. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about where we are to date. So low Earth orbit. As I mentioned, uh, 45 minutes to Earth. So what's the significance of that? Why have I mentioned that a couple times? Um, we'll talk about a little bit through here, and I'll get to again how risky spaceflight is. Um, it is actually one of the most dangerous things you can do. So the time to return is a really big deal, because if your systems fail, Many things you can survive without 45 minutes. Not all, but you can survive a lot for 45 minutes. So the challenges for low Earth orbit are your space. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. The uh, challenges are. So I'm going to move away because that that sort of echo is our <laughs> um, spacecraft design. And for any spacecraft, you have to worry about both induced environments and natural environments. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and the thing about human spaceflight is you actually have to return the crew 
home safely to be successful. So that is a huge design driver for us. Mass and volume constraints. Um, I'm not in this discussion going to bore you with program budgets and schedules. That is um, a, a very long topic that is not engineering, so we'll skip that topic. Um, and complex system level engineering. So with that, <clears throat> what we've done is we've built the International Space Station, an absolutely uh, incredible engineering accomplishment. It took us uh, over 30 assembly flights, so over 30 flights into low Earth orbit. It's a partnership with 15 countries. Um, you can read a few of the statistics. I'm not going to read them all to you, but some of the significant ones. 360, it's manned 365 days a year. Um, to give you a little bit of perspective, because I'll be talking a little bit about orbital dynamics, the station uh, goes around the Earth once every 90 minutes. So basically 45 minutes in daylight, 45 minutes in dark, and then it repeats. Um, I should go back and say it is the size of a football field. That's an American football field. I don't know exactly how to translate that to, uh, to a European football field, but hopefully that means something to you, 100 yards. Uh, a few statistics about what it actually takes to maintain a space station in low Earth orbit. Um, so crews have eaten 25,000 meals on the space station. Um, the second one I particularly want to talk about because you'll see how relevant it is when we talk about going farther. We use approximately seven tons of cruise supplies for six months. Seven tons. Now what is that, you might ask, because you certainly don't use seven tons in your house, and so I hope you don't use seven tons in your house in six months. Um, it is the standard food and water. Water is heavy, um, but also all of the supplies for the life support system to keep oxygen generated, to keep the air clean, to, to re remove the CO2, all of those things are part of what's needed to keep the crew alive for just six months. It's seven tons. <clears throat> um, it's very big. Um, it's larger than a six-bedroom house. It weighs about a million pounds. It was, as I said, an incredible integration achievement to actually be able to assemble this in space. But what's even more impressive to me is what we're using it for now. So right now, it's an orbiting laboratory. It is the only orbiting laboratory of its kind. Um, the latest numbers are, I have to read this one because I don't remember it, 2,060 experiments have been performed on board by 2,917 researchers. So this one facility has given access to researchers from 95 different countries. And why do you care? What's so special about a facility in space? Um, all kinds of things are special about a facility in space. We have uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer up there, <coughs> which uh, you may have heard of Dr. Ting. He's a Nobel Prize laureate who's got a spectrometer up there worrying about 
What, can I actually identify dark matter? And what are the true origins of the universe? You have health-related experiments. One of the things that, um, that is a problem for us is that astronauts in space, if unremediated, lose bone mass. Um, they actually lose calcium and lose bone mass unless we actively do something to prevent it. Well, that's a problem for us, but if you're a drug company worrying about how do I treat osteoporosis, that's actually a very good thing, right? There's lots of things you can learn about that. There's improved vaccines for a reason uh, we absolutely do not understand. Uh, viruses are more virulent in space. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> um, but, but what that means, again, for a drug company, is that if I'm trying to, to, to develop a vaccine, I can get information much more quickly. So for instance, there's a group that's working on a salmonella vaccine, which would be a, a really big deal. They've taken it through initial studies, and it's looking very promising. Um, I won't go through all of the various things, but really it's turned into an incredible science laboratory. So, how do we get there? <clears throat> this is where I wanted to talk a little bit about NASA's strategy. Um, I'm, I hope you're all aware that we stopped flying the shuttle quite a few years ago. <laughs> if not, you're probably not in the right discussion. Um, so right now we get there with Soyuz. So let me explain the strategy a little bit of where we're trying to go. So if I go back, let me go back to this first slide real quick. Oops, oh, there. So what was happening was NASA was spending, for human spaceflight, all of its resources in the Earth Reliance stage. Um, the station is expensive to operate, the shuttle was very expensive to operate. Um, any vehicle that goes to space and returns and then gets refurbished to go back around is very expensive to operate. And so the decision was made that we were spending so many resources in Earth Reliant that we couldn't actually get past there. That unless the government decided to, I don't know, say double our budget, which would have been fine with me, but for some reason, for some reason the taxpayers were not ready to do that, uh, we would not be able to get to the proving ground. And so we actually made the decision to try to commercialize low Earth orbit and to turn human trans, well, started with cargo transportation um, and hopefully to evolve to human transportation over to commercial entities. So what does that mean? That means certainly there's some competition. Right now we have uh, two different companies that deliver cargo to us for space. SpaceX is one of them and uh, Orbital is the other one. And they definitely compete, which is good for us. Um, relatively low risk for us because we don't, our cargo is expensive, but if, if something happens, and it has in the last couple of years, we've lost three different cargo rockets. Um, it, is, it is then more of a commercial decision of how much risk they're taking. The harder thing is trying to get crew there. <clears throat> and so what we're working on right now is commercial crew. Um, I talked a little bit about the cargo. For commercial crew, 
We're really trying to do a partnership with two companies, SpaceX and Boeing. Uh, if you follow space at all, you've probably heard a little bit about SpaceX. And Elon Musk has been very successful in building a new launch vehicle um, at a much cheaper rate than, than uh, in the past. So in theory, and hopefully, we'll, we'll have to see, we'll have to see how it pans out, this will provide a cheaper transportation to space. Probably the best analogy, and this might make more sense to those of us that are a little older in the room, is uh, the airline industry. Uh, if you go back 70 years, I'm not that old. If you go back, <laughs> if you go back 70 years, nobody hopped on a plane to go across the Atlantic to go visit their relatives. It was not a casual kind of thing. It was a really big deal. If you look at it today, my kids, for example, have absolutely no recollection of their first plane flight because they have literally been flying their entire lives. So this is seen as the first step in trying to make human spaceflight more obtainable to everybody. In fairness, I wouldn't run out and buy your ticket tomorrow unless you have a few billion to spare. Um, I think the initial, the initial effort will be to try to, one, support the space station, and then two, sell tickets to, to people that are very wealthy with the idea that prices will come down, you'll build infrastructure, and you will enable new markets to appear. So a lot of what we do is try to help these companies to make sure that when they do start flying, they start flying safely. So now let's talk about where we're going in the future. So where we really want to go is the next step. I did not come to NASA to stay in low Earth orbit. We've been in low Earth orbit a long time. So what we really want to do is, go, is take the next step. And what I want to spend the majority of the lecture on today is telling you a little bit about what the challenges are with that and what the opportunities are with that. First thing to note is that a nominal mission is week to, weeks to years, and an emergency return is days to years, depending on where you're going. If you look at what drives a mission beyond Earth orbit, uh, there's basic physics, all of the things that go with that, mass, volume, delta V, orbital mechanics, energy, chemistry, logistics, which really ties back to physics in this case, and I'll show you why, um, complex spacecraft level systems engineering. So here's the thing about spacecraft is, if you design a system that is 99.9% .9 reliable, I think if you're an engineer, you're going to say, wow, that's a really good system. If you have a space mission, which is a thousand days long, do the math, folks, you just died. So that in the nutshell, <laughs> is a very brief description of why our systems engineering is so complicated. Because it is an absolutely, completely hostile environment. And we have to have either perfect reliability, which is impossible, 
or redundancy and enough backup to actually make it successful. So let's talk about the first part. Let's talk about the physics and talk about what we use to get to the next step. So what you'll see, the next step is, will be taken in a couple of stages. The first one is beyond the moon, perhaps a Lagrange point, perhaps a distant retrograde orbit, but about 70,000 miles beyond the moon. We will be using the new rocket, which is the SLS rocket, I'll tell you more about that, and the Orion spacecraft. Uh, planned, not yet in work, is a new upper stage for the SLS rocket, which will then have the capacity to take you all the way to Mars. So let's look a little at what's involved in doing that. I told you physics. So let's talk about what it takes to get to space. It takes a rocket. We all know that, right? So if you take a rocket and you launch it up 200 miles, that's where space station is, then what? There's no gravity in space, right? So it just comes, just stays up there? Come on, folks. <laughs> of course there's gravity in space. For Pete's sake, the moon exerts enough tidal pull on, on the Earth to have waves and tides. There is gravity in space. It is absolutely not true that there's no gravity in space. You're only 200 miles above the Earth, and the Earth is really big. So what keeps a vehicle in orbit? Speed. Speed keeps a vehicle in orbit. So think back to your high school physics class. I don't know about you, but I remember my physics teacher using a yo-yo to talk about centripetal force. So take my example. If I just throw the end of the yo-yo up, what's it going to do? It's going to come right back down. It's probably going to hit me on the head, but it's definitely going to come right back down. <clears throat> what actually keeps the yo-yo extended at the end is speed. The, the equation for centripetal force is F equals mv squared over r. So the V is squared, it's very important. So that's what actually keeps a vehicle in orbit once you get it high enough. So to get to low Earth orbit, you need about 20,000 miles per hour. You'll sometimes hear people refer to escape velocity. For the Earth, that's our escape velocity. You have to get high enough to get beyond the, the atmosphere, basically, although the atmosphere doesn't have a clear line where it starts and stops. Basically, I have to get high enough above the atmosphere and then move fast enough that you stay in orbit. So, okay, so that gets us to low Earth orbit. Then what? Say I want to go to the moon. So then I've got to get out of low Earth orbit. I've got to get on a translunar injection, which takes, yes, more velocity. That's why most, uh, most aerospace engineers talk a lot about delta V, because that's what we really care about. So it takes another 8,200 miles per hour to get you to a lunar orbit. Then you got to circularize around the moon. If you don't circularize around the moon, you're just kind of waving to it as you go by. So that's another 2,400 miles per hour. <clears throat> then you probably want to get down there, right? Assume you don't want to just wave to it as you go by in circles. You probably want to land and get down there. 
So that's another 3,900 miles per hour. That's to get into the tra trajectory. 700 miles per hour because you kind of want to land softly. <laughs> so so you've got to fire the jets in the other direction. Hey, you can plant the flag. That doesn't cost you any delta V. But then you want to come home. Go backwards. 700 miles per hour to get up. 3,900 to, to get your lander into the lunar orbit. 2,400. Then you're off to come back to the Earth. The cool thing about coming back to the Earth, cool is probably not the right word if you listen to uh, one of the aerothermal discussions earlier, you can actually use the Earth's atmosphere to break. So it's less painful from a delta V perspective because you're using the Earth's atmosphere to slow you down as you come in. Use parachutes, your grand total to do a lunar type of mission is 42,000 miles per hour. So that's how much delta velocity you need, which translates to a really big rocket. <laughs> and, and so this shows you just a little bit about some of the rockets that some of them are still in use. The Atlas V is still in use. SpaceX is, is in use. Um, this is the one SpaceX is working on. Uh, Delta IV is in use, shuttle is obviously retired, Saturn V is retired. This is the one we're building right now, <clears throat> the SLS Block 1. This is the one that's uh, on the drawing board, which basically adds an upper stage to take you even further. So then if you look at the rocket in a little more detail, um, let me talk to you a little bit about the different stages, the center of it is the core stage. Um, what you'll find with any rocket is you want to shed mass. So you want stages that you can get rid of because the further you have to take the mass, the more costly it is. <clears throat> so the core stage is the biggest one. It has cryogenic helium. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not cryogenic helium. Cryo, cryogenic hydrogen and cryogenic oxygen in it. The rockets on the side, those might look familiar if you watch shuttle launches. Those are solid rocket boosters. They have a solid propellant in there. Think of it like a candle, except a candle with a lot of oomph. And then we have the upper stage. Then we have the Orion spacecraft. This is where the people are, that little piece. And you have a launch abort system. So, Let's look at just what it takes to do just the core stage. <clears throat> so this is what it looks like inside the core stage. You have a liquid hydrogen tank and you have a liquid oxygen tank. You have something in between them. Why liquid? Because gas takes up too much volume, right? Those are huge. Those are huge. There's no way we could do it with anything other than cryogens. So, hydrogen, there's 300,000 pounds of propellant in that tank, in that, that big tank. Here's where chemistry comes in. I won't quiz anybody. If there's 300,000 pounds of hydrogen in this big thing, how much do you think is in the oxygen tank? 
Oxygen's a lot denser, folks, so it's 1.8 million pounds of oxygen are in that tank. So that's the propellant required just for the core stage. If you look at what's actually required for the entire stack, what, what we call the stack is the whole thing. The rocket, the capsule on the top, everything. That stack on the launch pad is 5.75 million pounds. This piece here, I am having trouble with this point. There we go. This piece here kind of doesn't show up real well against the white screen, the crew module. That is the only piece that comes home. That is the piece the crew is in. <clears throat> that's what they're in the whole time, incidentally, if you ever feel like you live in cramped quarters. That's what they're in the whole time. At landing, it weighs 21,000 pounds. So I'm launching 5.75 million pounds to get 21,000 pounds home. So that's part of our challenge. <clears throat> that's part of why space is hard, the basic physics. Another reason why space is hard, which is also basic physics, is time and orbital dynamics. So a friend of mine, one of the astronauts, has a great display of orbital dynamics, the best one that I've seen without equations. So I brought that one for you. I thought you might appreciate that, or not. Some of you might rather have the equations and talk a little bit about, I'm going to use the Earth-Mars system, for example, because it's easier to visualize than the Earth-Moon system. So here's where you start. <clears throat> um, the dots, by the way, are not scale. <laughs> but, so the sun's in the middle. The Earth's 93 million miles out from the sun. It takes 12 months to orbit. We all know that. Mars is 140 million miles out and takes 22 and a half months to orbit. So if I want to go from Earth to Mars, all I got to do is go from there to there, right? Looks good. Looks easy. Takes 250,000 miles per hour. Remember the scenario I just went through took 42,000 and I showed you what it took to get 42,000 miles per hour? So 250,000 miles per hour requires a warp drive. If any of you in the research area are working on a warp drive, please let me know. We would love to have one. But in the interim, that will not work. We can't get there that way. So what you actually have to do is set up a transfer orbit. That's the white orbit here. Seems kind of obvious. All right, I want to get from here to this outer orbit. I've got to set up an orbit like that. So let's look at how that looks. I start off. There's Earth. There's Mars. Here's my spacecraft. Spacecraft is a little white dot. I go three months later, six months later. Hmm. You might be noticing that there might be a little bit of a problem coming. Because right now, my spacecraft's here, and in its almost to Mars orbit. Trouble is, Mars is back there. So I get to Mars orbit. Now we're embarrassed. Okay, no going down to the surface of the planet and planting the flag, so I head back. Month 9, month 15. Now we're dead. Because <laughs> guess what? I got back to Earth orbit. 
And where's Earth? Oh. So not a good solution. So let's try another solution. <clears throat> so again, seems fairly obvious, all right? I obviously timed it wrong. So I need to have the relative position of the planets such that when I get here, there's a place to get to called the launch window. That's why we worry about launch windows. So off I go, right? Ah, month six, it's looking pretty good. All right, month eight and a half, and that is how long it takes, by the way, eight and a half months. We're heroes. I go down, I plant the flag, I come home. Month nine, month 15, uh-oh. Because <laughs> guess what? I came back, and where's the Earth? The Earth's still over here, amazingly enough. So now you're dead heroes. So how do you actually have to do it? You got the first part right. You start with planets like that, you get there, and you made it. Then you have to hang out. You have to hang out for a long time. So let's look at how long you have to hang out. Month 17, month 23, two years into your mission. Ah, month 23 and a half, I get to start coming home. 24, 28, looking pretty good. 32 months to Mars. So 32 months is, is the shortest we can do a Mars trip. And you can spend your whole time in spacecraft if you want, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. Or you can pre-position assets on the surface of Mars so that you have a habitat and have things to do, which is much more expensive, but probably much more practical in the long run. So now, let me talk a little bit closer to home and talk about what does that mean to a lunar mission. Point in talking about time is remember my example on the ISS, you need supplies to keep the crew alive for that long. So what does that mean just for the moon? This is, this is for going, Orion's mission is set up for a 21-day mission to go beyond the moon, so it's not just the moon, it's beyond it. And what do we need to do that? Well, you need oxygen. And these boxes are to scale, by the way. So BO, the yellow, is beyond Earth orbit. LEO is low Earth orbit. So basically what you would need if you stayed at the space station for the 21-day mission is 36 liters of oxygen. If you want to go beyond, beyond Earth orbit, you need 190 liters of oxygen. For food, you can see the difference there. Um, a few that people don't typically think about is carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide filters. Um, <clears throat> it is really important in a closed environment to provide oxygen. It's equally important in a closed environment to get rid of the CO2. So these are the kinds of numbers that it takes us to do a 21-day mission. And so, a little bit more about Orion and how we do it. So Orion's built in a few stages. <clears throat> Again, in space flights, you want to stage everything as much as you can. So you have the crew module, two basic components, and I'll come back to the others that sort of attach it. There's the crew module, and there's the European service module. So the European service module is being built by ESA. Um, 
and it is basically the in-space propulsion. So the rocket gets you up to space. Remember, you had all kinds of delta-v requirements once you got into space. You need in-space propulsion, and that's provided by the service module. You have to attach it, so you have a module adapter. You have jettison panels because you don't leave this thing exposed as you go up into space. You have to have it covered. And you have a spacecraft adapter to attach it to the rest of the spacecraft. If I look at it in a little more detail, um, <clears throat> what it, it actually does, it's being built by Airbus. And it's really, it's the, it's the vehicle's powerhouse. It's what supplies it with both power, because it has solar arrays that unfold, and propulsion, uh, thermal control, and air and water for the, for the crew. The tanks are in the service module, so it's plumbed to the crew module. And uh, this is, and, and I haven't hit on it too much, but one of the interesting things about spaceflight is it's not just a technical challenge, but it can have huge international and geopolitical considerations. Um, it was obviously a very big rivalry between the US and the USSR and Apollo. Um, space Station was an incredible collaboration. And this is actually the first time the US has ever built a spacecraft where another I guess I can't really call ESA a country because it's more than a country, but where a another group has been a critical integral component, and that's being provided by ESA. So um, ESA does a lot with the International Space Station. This is kind of a next step for what we're doing for exploration. If I take it down one more level, um, I probably won't go through all of this. We've We've hit a few of them, but it does, the one, one aspect that I haven't hit is it also provides high altitude abort. So if we're going to launch a crew, we have to have an abort capability. Again, spaceflight is really, really dangerous. So we are required to have an abort capability, and the service module provides that. It uh, provides the power and the thermal control. <coughs> So, with that, I'm going to show you a brief video that talks a little bit about our first test flight for Orion. And hopefully, the, the piece that I haven't talked about here is the complex systems engineering of spacecraft, right? And, and what I want to do is give you a little bit of a flavor of what's involved in that. My name is Kelly Smith, and I work on navigation and guidance for Orion. Orion is NASA's next generation spacecraft. Built with versatility in mind, it can take astronauts deeper into space than we've ever gone before, to an asteroid, or even onto Mars. For these missions, Orion has to be one tough spacecraft, with saving high speeds, serious temperatures, and extreme radiation. Before we can send astronauts into space on Orion, we have to test all of its systems. And there's only one way to know if we got it right. Fly it in space. 
for Orion's first flight, no astronauts will be aboard. The spacecraft is loaded with sensors to record and measure all aspects of the flight in every detail. It all begins with launch, aboard a Delta IV heavy rocket. This was a test flight, remember, so that's why it was more on the Delta IV.
even though it's slowing from 20,000 miles per hour to about 300 miles per hour, we're still traveling amazingly fast. We must slow down to safely land in the ocean. Luckily, we have parachutes. Specially designed for a ride, the parachutes help us hit the brakes, but not too quickly. One day people will be aboard, so deceleration must happen in stages to keep things comfortable for the crew. The forward bay cover jettisons. Two drogue chutes deploy and slow the returning spacecraft down to 175 miles per hour. Then, the three main parachutes open. Once fully engaged, this canopy would cover an American football field. It takes parachutes this size and strength to slow our descent to 20 miles per hour, and then, splash down. For this first flight, we won't have astronauts inside, but we still have some very precious cargo. The flight data from this mission is stored inside the Orion spacecraft. While our flight might be over, there is still a lot of work to do. Onboard sensors recorded every detail from launch to flying in space to re-entry to landing. Flight tests are difficult and complex, but they give us confidence that the systems we have designed work under real flight conditions. It's great to be a part of this first space flight for Orion, and we're looking forward to beginning a new chapter in human space exploration. Okay, so that was the test flight we actually did uh, in December a year ago. Went very well. Here are a few real pictures as opposed to animation beforehand. Um, what I wanted to spend a few minutes now doing was to give you a specific example of a systems engineering problem. So <clears throat> I could talk for days and days and days about the complexity of designing a spacecraft. Lionel told me he wanted 10 minutes of a more technical discussion, so I'm, I'm thinking, how can I boil this down? So what I wanted to do was give you an example. I think it actually meshes really well if you attended the mini lectures, because you heard the mini, mini lecture on uh, aerothermal. Um, so what I want to talk about is the heat shield and how it relates to vehicle design. So not so much what the heat shield itself has to do, although that's part of it, but how it really relates to vehicle design. <clears throat> because we changed it after EFT1. It was by far the biggest change we made. What I'll do is kind of walk through what it has to do and some of the implications and then talk about what we changed and why. So the first thing is understanding the basic structure. <clears throat> um, many of you, if you're structures folks now, probably automatically assume composites. It's a lot of what the industry has gone to in building structure is composites. Composites have positives, composites have negatives. Um, for things that you are not doing a lot of repetitive builds on, um, probably you, you lose the majority of the cost advantages and you still have some of the disadvantages. One being they are uh, brittle relatively speaking, very strong, but not very forgiving. <clears throat> so our 
structure, this is primary structure of the spacecraft under the heat shield, is a stringer structure. Stringer looks just like what you kind of see there. It, it's not a solid structure. It's a skeleton, if you will. It's made out of titanium. Expensive, but strong. So that's the basic structure that we're operating with. <clears throat> we then have a carbon laminate skin. And here you can kind of see how they come together. You have the titanium stringer, you have the skin, then the block avcoat is the actual thermal protection system. It's an ablative system, just like the one you heard discussed earlier, which means that it's designed to burn off to some extent. Not the whole thing, but it's designed to burn off to some extent. So what do we have for EFT1? We had a monolithic heat shield. <clears throat> so the implications of that are it's, the, as you may have heard in the video, it's the biggest heat shield ever constructed, 16 feet in diameter. And it was done as one big heat shield. Um, the manufacturing process was horrific, to be honest. Um, it required a honeycomb structure. You basically got what looks a lot like a caulk gun and you had to fill in all the honeycombs by hand. Uh, the material cures, but it can't cure too fast and it can't cure too slow and the heat shield is way too big to do it all at once and let it cure. So you've got to do it in pieces, you've got to stick it in an oven. It's a nightmare to, uh, to manufacture, but we felt that it was the safest answer. So that was our initial design. Um, what this design has to handle um, is incredible, incredible peak pressures and heat fluxes. So what we had to handle in orbiter for the peak pressure on the tiles, which was our thermal protection system on the belly of the orbiter, was about 115 to 130 PSF. What we have to handle on Orion is about 1,400 PSF. If you look at heat shield fluxes, it's about, you, you hit about 2,200 degrees on the orbiter, it was about 25 BTU per square foot per second. Um, Orion is about 650. If you plot it, this was the normal orbiter flight regime. This is also what we see for commercial crew. Here's Orion re-entry. So incredible demands on the heat shield. Our induced environment in this case is extreme. It's extremely hard to deal with. It, it has to be a heck of a heat shield. But on top of that, guess what this thing lands on? Guess what hits the water? The heat shield. <clears throat> so it not only, people think of the heat shield as only having a thermal protection requirement, it has a huge structural requirement. It's the thing that hits hits the water. And that sounds relatively simple to design for, except when we look at design constraints, 
we have to first look at, well, how might it be hitting the water? So we nominally have three parachutes. You saw the three parachutes. Um, we, we have lost parachutes in the past. Parachutes at, at very high altitudes are incredibly hard to predict and model. So we have to protect for only having two parachutes. Then there's sea states. Sea states are really hard to predict, <clears throat> and they're not very cooperative. So we have to protect for all kinds of sea states. The load, we have to be able to structurally handle the impact of a 22,000 pound vehicle hitting the water at various angles without breaking the heat shield. Uh, for the engineering students in the room, the way you do that is you cannot definitively do that so that you bound every condition. You have to go to Monte Carlo analysis. So what a Monte Carlo analysis is in the simplest words is you take all these different conditions and you say you want X probability, and in our case it's usually a 97% probability, that you're going to come through safe and sound. And so what you see here is some of the Monte Carlo analysis for both normal impact velocity and tangential impact velocity, and what we have to be able to handle with a heat shield. So I told you we changed it. So why did we change it? So as I said, this was a monolithic. <clears throat> and before we flew the vehicle, we took coupons of, of the material. Standard practice, take coupons. It wasn't as strong as we predicted it was going to be. In fact, it failed its strength. Still was OK for EFT-1, for the flight test but would not have been okay for a lunar return. And it had cracks in it. So just think about it from a common sense perspective. You have this really big 16-foot thing that's coming in at 4,000 degrees. If I showed you a CFD analysis, computational fluid dynamics analysis on it, you would see that the temperatures vary widely across it. So you take a really big thing and you put real high temperatures on one end and not so high here, and you have it bonded to the titanium stringer. You do incidentally have a CTE mismatch, which is a coefficient of thermal expansion mismatch because you have very different materials. So one is respond, what that basically means is one is responding at a different rate than the other one is. And you have strength problems and you have crack problems. So we went to blocks. So here's the implication of going to blocks. <clears throat> you fix a lot of the problem of having one big piece that you're kind of pulling in different directions. But the failure mode for a monolithic is cracking. Ultimately, could lead to a, a bad happening when it lands, but failure mode's cracking. For blocks, it's death. It comes off. So what we then had to do was, was solve bonding problems, solve non-destructive evaluation problems, and show that we had enough margin. We also had to worry about gap filler. Because I told you it was an ablative material, right? You have to put something between it. Just like if you're tiling your floor, you've got to put something between it. And guess what? It doesn't ablate at quite the same rate 
which means that you either get a ridge, which is really bad for your aerodynamics, or you get a valley, which is really bad for your thermodynamics. And so you have to do a bunch of testing. So that's just one example of a change that we made coming out of it. And maybe gives you a little bit of a feel for how all of the spacecraft systems are interrelated. So last topic I wanted to talk about real briefly is safety. I mentioned before, human spaceflight is really dangerous. So these are US numbers, uh, you know, they're probably about the same for the UK. If you go get on a commercial aircraft today, you've got about a one in two million chance of getting killed. Really, really small. Those are pretty good odds. It's a lot worse if you get in a car, by the way. But, but really, really good odds. If you go get in a military aircraft, it's about one in 200,000. Eh? Order, order of magnitude worse, still not too bad. Spaceflight, empirically, what we have seen, what we've seen, what the Russians seen, those are the only two countries that have done manned spaceflight, one in 200. One in 200. That's really dangerous. There is not much you can do on this Earth that's more dangerous than that. Actually, I looked at a set of statistics. You can climb Mount Everest, and you have a better chance of getting killed. So if you're thinking about climbing Mount Everest, <laughs> think, think about that. But it's really dangerous, and, and that's part of what makes our engineering job a challenge. But what I wanted to just spend a minute on for all of the engineers in the room is the people part of that. Because I will tell you, you spend a lot of time in engineering school studying equations and doing analysis and doing tests. And if you're not careful, you think that is your only job. If you are working on any complex engineering problem, you better be worried about safety. And that is as important or the most important part of your job. And it comes very true on spaceflight. But I'll tell you, I don't care what you do. If you build bridges, safety is part of your job. And people say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll follow all the right processes. Won't be a problem. And yet every major industrial country has had a bridge failure, a big bridge failure in its past for things that are pretty basic. But then people haven't questioned where they're at and assessed whether things needed to be differently, dif done differently. So in our case, we lost an orbiter about 13 years ago. One of the things that we ask our people to think about are hidden assumptions, normalization of deviance. That sounds a lot like psychological jargon, right? But what does that mean? And I'll, I'll give you a real life example. So on the shuttle, we knew that we lost foam on pretty much every flight. Foam came off. There was foam on the, on the cryogenic external tank. You had to have it to keep the cryos cold. We knew that as it went through the ascent environment, you lost some foam. 
The orbiter was never designed or certified to be hit by foam. But you know, we flew it that way and 99 times nothing happened. Hundredth time something happened. So we actually tell our people that not only is it their right to question whether we're making the right technical decisions, it is actually their obligation. If they don't understand something, if they're questioning whether we're doing the right thing, they are absolutely obligated to bring it up. And, and I would suggest that you might consider that in other areas of engineering. Because being part of a team where you have designed something and killed somebody is not an experience I would recommend for anybody. So why do we do it? I ju I've just spent this whole time telling you how hard it is. Why do we do it? We do it for all of the very real tangible benefits and all of the less tangible benefits. Space has driven an incredible amount of the technology in our nation and actually in the world. Um, an awful lot of the initial computer development was driven by the space race. You could go on and on about how much technology was driven by space. Um, international cooperation, I touched on that a little bit, but the space station is a phenomenal example of what we can do as a united world as opposed to nations competing with one another. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the astronauts, none of them are, are really touchy-feely types. I have never heard one of them that has not come down and commented that from space, it's amazing. The Earth is one big, beautiful blue marble with no boundaries, no country borders, nothing, and, and how they wish they could transfer that to everyone to encourage international cooperation. STEM, obviously we like to use space to encourage math and science, and new discoveries. People ask us why we explore. Well, if we knew why we were exploring, we wouldn't need to explore. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea of exploration is to find new things. So that's what I wanted to share with you today, and thanks for listening. And uh, happy to take Q&A if we have any time left. Thank you.